Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So we know that obviously if the Father hadn't sent the Son, if the Father, if the Father and the Son hadn't sent the Holy Spirit, there'd be no way for anyone on earth to be saved. Because as we've talked about before, the blood of the Paschal Lamb would remain in the bowl and not be applied to the doorposts of anyone's soul. The work that Christ has accomplished would not be applied to anyone if they had not sent the Holy Spirit to apply salvation to us. So it's really obvious to us that we need, needed God to send the Spirit, and He did, and we're grateful for that. But I want to imagine with you for just a second something that is entirely imaginary. It's only theoretical. It could never be this way. But imagine if God had sent the Spirit to save us, to apply salvation to us, but immediately after the Spirit applied salvation, He left, went back to heaven, He's gone. It's hard to imagine all of the terrible consequences that would follow. They would be very, actually very, very awful. But I just want to highlight one of them. If the Holy Spirit were to save us, but then leave us, we could never, ever experience any semblance of church unity. We would hate each other. We would all have come to church this morning hating each other, fighting each other, remembering perceived slights that we've given to each other. There would be just an arrogance among us. There would be a sense of infighting. There would be a party spirit. We would have political parties of Faith Bible Church, so to speak, and we would come this morning wanting to win out over each other and get our way in whatever, the music, the worship style, whatever it might be. That would be entirely our focus because those are all things that we can do naturally and we do naturally without the Holy Spirit's help. And if He were gone, that's what we would do. But to have unity as a local church, which is certainly one of our aims, it's not possible. Even if you went around the earth and found the people who are most, just by temperament, peaceable, gracious, kind, and gentle, they would split within a year. <laughs> there would not be any possibility of ongoing church unity. So we thank God that the Spirit who saves us, when He saves us, He stays with us. You walked in this morning having the Holy Spirit indwelling you. So if we have any sense of unity here, that is why. And in a world like ours, which is full of all kinds of division, of course, we've got political divisions that are happening. Turn on the news and you know that that's true in our country. We have families that are broken. There are relationships in workplaces. We can call them toxic. You can call them whatever you want, but there are just absolutely broken relationships. We have marriages where the spouses cannot stand each other. They live like strangers in the same home. And that's just the norm. That's not like something unusual. That's just the norm in this world. So for us to live in a world broken like this, and we're broken too, and yet to come together as a local church and to have real unity together, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. And we should implant that firmly in our minds that if he's not doing that work, it doesn't happen. But he is doing that work. And that's what we're talking about in this last lesson today of this class. You remember that in this class, at the very start of it, we had talked about the being of the Holy Spirit, that He's God. 
and what that means. And that he's one person of the Godhead. He's not a force. We talked also about Pentecost, but then we moved from there to focus on the six major roles of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, really in the whole Bible, but especially in the New Testament. And those, if you remember, the first one was that he conveys God's presence, which is sort of the main thing the Spirit does. And in conveying God's presence, in doing that, he gives life, hence the class giver of life. He communicates and guides us in truth. He fosters holiness in us. He empowers us. And now today we're looking at the last of the major roles of the Holy Spirit, which is that the Holy Spirit uniquely unites us together as believers. So that's what we are talking about today. This is really what everyone wishes they could do. Every church wishes it had the power to have perfect unity. Every country wishes it could root out all division and just be completely united. Every workplace, at least the employers, wish that they could get everyone to get along and every parent of any family wishes all the kids would live in perfect harmony. Everybody wants this, but if you're in any of those situations, you quickly realize you don't have the power to produce any of that. You can set the table to make it easier rather than harder, but you can't make unity happen. But the Holy Spirit can, and that's what we're talking about today. Now, it's true, I know we're talking about church unity, and you might think, well, I look around at churches and I don't see a ton of unity. <laughs> That's because we muddy the waters. That's really our fault. We mess a whole lot of things up, and we can be honest about that. So if you go in any church in the world, you will find evidences of disunity. That's true. There are church splits, there are divisions, denominations fight, etc. But it doesn't negate the fact, those negative things do not negate the fact that there are a lot of positive things. That is, there are a lot of believers, including here, who experience an immense amount of unity with other believers. So you might right now be thinking, oh man, I've got some tension with this brother or this sister in the church. And that could almost seem rather dominant in your mind. But don't forget, if, it, if you're only thinking about one person you have tension with, that's a lot of people you don't. That's a work of the Holy Spirit, that you're not fighting with everyone. So I do want to point out, the Spirit does this work. It is a real work. And the negative examples of disunity among believers, that's our fault. That's not any fault of the Holy Spirit. So, with that introduction, let's look at what the Bible teaches us about the Spirit's role in uniting us. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide today into two parts. These aren't perfect terms, but I think we can speak of the Spirit's work of uniting us in the New Testament in a passive sense and in an active sense. So those will be our two headings. So let's begin with what I mean by the Spirit passively unites us together in Scripture. What I mean is there is a major emphasis when you look at the New Testament, especially in regard to the Holy Spirit. There's a major emphasis on the fact that almost automatically you and I have unity because we have the Spirit. It's before the Spirit even necessarily does anything in us. I mean, He does. But it's just Him indwelling us and then gifting us. Those things the New Testament views as that's a reason why we have unity. So it's not something active. We're going to get to that. But it's not something active the Spirit's doing to promote unity in us. But rather, it's a passive. It's just that He indwells us and we have unity. Let me show you this from Scripture. I want to start by showing you this in what we can call the Gentile Pentecost. Or sometimes it's called a second Pentecost. Neither of those terms are perfect, but you remember, because we talked about it, that in Acts 2 was the first Pentecost, the Pentecost, capital P, 
Pentecost, and we've already talked about what happened there, where all the Jewish people had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and there they were, and the Holy Spirit came upon that small band of 120 believers in the upper room, led by Peter, and they go out into the streets. Peter proclaims the gospel. They're speaking in tongues, different languages, literally. They go out, proclaim the mighty works of God, proclaim the gospel, and there is a mass conversion of Jewish people. Now remember, at Pentecost, it was Jewish people who were being converted. And really, if you think about it, the whole early church, we just look at them as, oh, the early Christians, truly almost the entire early, early church was just Jewish. There were like none of us in there, no Gentiles. It started out Jewish. Christ, the Messiah, came first for the Jewish people. And so the early Christians were all Jewish Christians. And Pentecost reflected that. For the Spirit came on them in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, and it was all Jewish Christians or proselytes, people who were Gentile but converted to Judaism. They were the ones who had come to the city for the festival. They were Jewish. They were the ones who heard the gospel, and thousands of them came to Christ, establishing really that core group of the early church. So that was Pentecost. This reflects even Jesus' own attitude when he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's where he started. And in fact, he commanded while he was still alive, his first disciples only to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And even the apostle Paul, who would become the apostle to the Gentiles, our apostle, at first he was focused on the Jews, just like everybody else was. And you remember, even when he went to foreign cities, he'd start in the synagogue. So that's the way Christianity at first and even at Pentecost began, an explosion within Judaism. So that is Pentecost, but what I want to talk about today is that a few chapters later in Acts, there is something that we can call, it's in Acts 10, we could call it the Gentile Pentecost. Because what ends up happening there in the early churches, you have all these Jewish Christians, that's awesome. They're receiving the Holy Spirit, they're being saved and baptized and added to the church, that's awesome. But then a persecution arises, and that's when people finally start obeying what Jesus already commanded them to do in the Great Commission, and they start spreading from the center of Judaism, spreading away from Jerusalem, running away from persecution, and they end up in places like Samaria, where you have half-Jews. And then they end up in other places where you have full-blown Gentiles, and they go, what are we going to do here? Well, I guess we should talk about Jesus. And as they do, the half-Jew Samaritans and even the full non-Jewish Gentiles believe the gospel. Now, you and I might think, well, that's awesome. I mean, we're Gentiles. What are we going to think? That's awesome. Gentiles added to the church. How cool is that? But that is to misunderstand how massive of a gap there was in the early world this early church, between Jew and Gentile culturally. It was massive. You don't intermingle. If you're Jewish, you don't even go into the house of a Gentile because they worship idols. They're pagans. Massive gap. So when the Gentiles start being added to the church, it was not awesome <laughs> to a lot of Jewish Christians. They said, hold up. We thought this was like a Jewish Christianity. But of course, God's purpose was bigger than that. How did that early church finally see with some degree of clarity that God meant for the Gentiles to be a united part of the church? Not outsiders, but united. 
Now, Paul would play a huge, huge role in that, in revealing the mystery of the gospel. The Gentiles are included. But even before you get to Paul, it was actually through Peter, in what we're going to call here a Gentile Pentecost, that that became plain. This is in Acts chapter 10. There was, just briefly, a Gentile named Cornelius, and he had received a vision that told him that someone, Peter, was going to come to him and share with him and his family some very important news. So he was excited about that. Now, Cornelius, he's a Gentile. He is not Jewish. He respects the Jewish people, but he is not Jewish. Peter, meanwhile, you remember, has his own vision while he's hungry. Sheet comes down with unclean animals, what the Gentiles eat, and he says, I will not eat it. God says, eat it. He says, I'm not going to eat it. Three times to make clear to Peter, hey, I'm doing something here. In the past, you couldn't eat this. Something's changing. Well, just then, here come some people, and the Holy Spirit communicates to Peter, go with those people. And they've come from Cornelius. He said, hey, Cornelius had a vision, and you need to go talk to him. Peter says, all right. So he goes with them, goes to the house. He preaches the gospel, not only to Cornelius, but it says his relatives and close friends were all gathered in that house to hear Peter. Peter does what Jews don't do. He goes into the house of a Gentile. It's a big deal. And he proclaims to them the gospel. And now see what happens in Acts 10 when Peter proclaims the gospel to the Gentiles. Starting here, I'm not sure actually what verse this is starting. This is starting in verse 44 of Acts 10. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, those are the Jewish people with Peter, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Well, it fell on the Jews at Pentecost, but on the Gentiles? How did they know that? For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, which is exactly what happened at Pentecost that made it clear that the Spirit had come upon them. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? I mean, I know they're Gentiles, but look, they're speaking in tongues like us who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them, Gentiles, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Peter preaches the gospel. They hear the gospel. They believe the gospel. The Spirit falls upon them. They speak in tongues. They're baptized and added to the church. What are we talking about? We're talking about Pentecost and the Gentile Pentecost. It's exactly the same thing is happening. But one was primarily Jewish, if not exclusively Jewish. And now shocking to the people who are with Peter, who thought this is a Jewish thing, it's happening to the Gentiles. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, Mike is trying to keep us from becoming Pentecostal. And that's very fair because there are people today. So Mike's point is just wanting to clarify that this really happened. You know, first Pentecost, they spoke in tongues. Second Pentecost, they spoke in tongues. 
And that is what the Spirit's using to show that they receive the Holy Spirit. Some people today, based on that, say, so if you receive the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. But we're a cessationist church, which I think we've talked about at one point, just meaning that we believe that that was a gift specifically for that time, for this purpose, to show they were united, among other things. We don't believe that we speak in tongues today. So that's a good point, Mike. Notice what these uh, Jewish Christians who come to Peter conclude after they witness what's going on. They say, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? The answer technically is, well, yes, there would be some Jewish people very adamant to withhold the water from them. <laughs> they would say, they got to be Jewish first. We're studying Galatians. You got to be Jewish first. That was what the Judaizers were saying. But here's why they don't come to that conclusion who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So to Mike's point, this is a way of demonstrating clearly before their eyes, we wouldn't have thought the Gentiles could be just like us in the church, but they've received the Holy Spirit just like us, which makes it obvious that God wants them to be included just like us. In the next chapter, Peter is actually confronted by some Jewish Christians who are like, hey, we heard you went in a Gentile house. And as Peter gives his expl explanation, he says this at the end, if then God gave the same gift to them, that's the Holy Spirit, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And then those Jewish Christians who took offense at first, they, they when they heard these things, fell silent. There's nothing they can say. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The point here is, the unity in the early church between Jew and Gentile, which was a massive source of division, the primary first clear way that God demonstrated these were to come together, even before Paul's ministry of making that clear in his letters, the primary way that that was made obvious was by the Holy Spirit. Not by some activity of the Spirit, not him working unity among the Jews and Gentiles necessarily in this case, but just by the fact that they all received the same Spirit. And for them, unlike for us, for them, that was evidenced in them speaking in tongues. But the point is they all received the Spirit, and that's what helped the Jewish Christians early on, although they forgot it later, but it helped the Jewish Christians early on to have unity with the Gentiles because they went, oh, we all have the same Spirit. That's what I mean when I say the Spirit works passively to unite, because here's an example of Him. It's not something He did necessarily, it's just the fact He indwelt them all. That in and of itself almost automatically helped them to have a sense of their own unity. This is what's described in Ephesians 2 by Paul. When he says, we both, and he's talking about Jew and Gentile, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. One spirit, there's both of us, there's two of us, Jew and Gentile, but there's only one spirit, and we both have access to the Father through him. Now, you say, why does all of this matter? Because none of us here that I'm aware of are really divided over whether Jews and Gentiles should be in the same churches. <laughs> Actually, apart from uh, somebody I talked to this last week who said they did an ancestry test and they have like a small percentage of Jewish blood in them. But unless that's your case, and even that being the case here, this is not a divisive issue, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. It's a non-issue for us. Praise God, the church has grown. 
However, that being said, does it mean that we as churches are all perfectly unified now? Now that we've overcome that confusion, we are no longer divided about anything. <laughs> oh, we wish it were so. But instead, we've replaced that source of division with a whole lot of other sources of division. The interesting thing is that the New Testament, because obviously it's focused on Jew-Gentile divide because that was a big deal 2,000 years ago. But actually the New Testament itself recognizes there were other ways that early Christians were divided, not just Jew-Gentile. And those ways are more reflective of how we divide ourselves today. So let me give you the best example. It's in 1 Corinthians 12. This one will resonate a little more directly with. It's still a little different, but we resonate a bit, bit more with. Already at the start of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, you might remember that there were people who had divided into factions. Sadly, it happens at churches. Let's not do that, okay? Can we not do that? Let's not do that. But that happens. In this case, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, their divisions were because of certain teachers. Some people liked one teacher, some people liked another teacher. That's never happened, right? That never happens. No, that happens all the time. And that happened there in the early church. So some people would say, I'm of Paul. Paul's my guy. I listen to all of his sermons online. A little anachronistic, but you get the idea. Paul's my guy. I read all his books. Like that guy, knows, he just resonates with me. And the other guy's like, Paul, man, he said some crazy stuff. Look over here, Apollos, that guy's eloquent. That guy understands how the Greek people think. He's really contextualized. He's really, I mean, he's really sensitive in how he shares. I like Apollos. And another guy's like, no, 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 Peter, man. Peter, he's an original. He was with Jesus. He understands. These other guys, they just, where'd they come from? And another guy's like, I'm of Jesus. He's the only one who was right. I'm of Jesus. Good. Good job there. But all the other groups were wrong. And so there was a division already happening there among, by teachers. So whatever teacher you're of, that's your group. Happens all the time. Well, when you get to 1 Corinthians 12, he's not focused so much on the division among teachers. His focus is on yet another thing, which we also share. People had different gifts, which should have united them. But alas, it divided them. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. He starts by saying, now, there are varieties of gifts. Lots of different kinds of gifts, and we've already talked about that in this class. Different spiritual gifts. Wonderful. Well, what the Corinthians seem to have done, which we can guess it because it happens all the time, is to take some of the gifts that they considered more important. Which, which ones would those be? The temptation is always to think, whichever ones get you up front. So the teaching and the preaching and, you know, leading, like that's the real important stuff. So we make the division, the pastors, and then you've got the lay people, <laughs> you know, like what in the world, where'd that come from? But we do that. And that's what they did there. And they said, well, you've got the gifts that put you out front for them because it was early church. They had some of those gifts of revelation as well, like tongues, which we don't have today, or prophecies. But all of those put you up front. You're leading, you're speaking. And then you had the other gifts, which are the vast majority of the gifts are not those. It's a very small group of it. Most spiritual gifts in the church, if you're going to function, everyone can't just be prophesying. Most gifts in the church are going to be administration and leading and giving and helping and serving. A lot of them are going to be behind the scenes type of things. But what the Corinthian church seemed to do was say, hey, those guys standing up front declaring the will of God, like those are the legit people. So those of us who do that, we're legit. Everybody else, you know, get the crumbs, do what you can. So there ends up being a division. And you know, I'm just, this isn't in the text, but you know from experience, it goes both ways, you know, so that if you have this gift that you think, oh, they have that gift in front of, they're probably just proud and arrogant, but I'm behind the scenes, you know. 
I'm humble. And I'm, anyways, we divide over all these things. The point is they're different gifts. And any time something's different, there's the potential for division. Even if it's the same, there is, but especially if there's some difference. The point is the spirits gifted people differently, and so they divided over that. So Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but how does he push them to unity? He follows, but, varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Different gifts. Oh, then I'll be in this group, and you be in this group of gifts? No, no, no. Same spirit. And listen to what he follows with. This is good. He says, for to one is given through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom. There's that guy up front speaking. It's through the Spirit. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. Again, these are most of these unique to the early church, to another, the interpretation of tongues. And he says, all these are empowered by one and the same, same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Again, it's not that the spirit, in this case, we'll talk about this in a second, it's not that he came into the Corinthian church and actively worked unity among them in this case. But the point Paul is making is by default, just because he indwells you and has gifted all of you, there should be unity because there's only one spirit who gifted you all. So he's not directly attacking unity. Let's make unity happen. But here it's just something else the spirit did, but because there's only one spirit. He's using really the analogy of a body. You have a body and you have a spirit. There's not two spirits in your body. And there's not one spirit in two bodies. There's one body, one spirit. Similarly, Paul argues, the body of Christ, the church, we've got all these different members, but there's only one spirit in us. Therefore, we ought to be united just like one body should be united with itself and not divided. So that's what I mean by the spirit passively unites us. So when we feel divided, we go, wait a minute. You have the Holy Spirit in you. I have the Holy Spirit in me. That is already a massive ground for unity between us. Assuming we have the Spirit, it's already a great ground for unity. All right, so that's passive. Let's move now to the Bible's teaching about the active role of the Holy Spirit in uniting us. Listen to the words which conclude 2 Corinthians here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you remember from an earlier class, we call this a triadic passage. It doesn't prove the Trinity, but you have each person of the Trinity there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're set in parallel. So it's a good clue that there is a Trinity so it's a triadic passage. And in this triadic passage that ends 2 Corinthians, each person of the Godhead, Paul appeals to them that they would do something for the Corinthians. Just one God, but three persons, and he appeals to each person. He wishes, really, on the Corinthians something from each person. 
And you see that there. From the Son, he's wishing grace. From the Father, he's wishing love. And what is he wishing from the Holy Spirit? Fellowship. This is the fun Greek word koinonia. I don't know if you ever heard the word koinonia. It's a good word to know. Koinonia. The idea is a commonness, a sharedness, a sharedness, a commonness, koinonia. The Greek of the New Testament is called koine Greek, similar word, because it was common. It was used by everybody. Typical common Greek. Koinonia is our commonness, our sharedness. And Paul is wishing for this kind of sense of sharedness among us, specifically not from the Father, nor from the Son, but specifically from the Holy Spirit. Now, it is possible, and some translations say this, that this koinonia is talking about our sharedness with the Holy Spirit, our participation in the Holy Spirit. But I agree with Wayne Grudem, who says this, quote, the word koinonia, or fellowship, could also mean participation in the Holy Spirit here. True. But it would make little sense for Paul to wish for them something they already had as believers, participation in the Holy Spirit. It's better to translate the verse, like the ESV here, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, thus emphasizing a blessing from the Holy Spirit that Paul hoped would increase in the Corinthian church. What is the blessing specifically from the Holy Spirit he wishes for the Corinthians? Well, what did they need the most? Fellowship, unity. They needed unity. So he wishes them koinonia, and he wishes it from the Holy Spirit, which shows us he could have wished it from the Father or the Son, but the fact that he uniquely wishes it from the Holy Spirit shows us the Holy Spirit has an active role in giving us this koinonia or sense of fellowship among ourselves. I think this is the same point that's being made in Philippians 2. I don't remember when I preached it if I said that or not. I don't know. So maybe I'm contradicting myself. But as I look at the text now, I think this is the point. I think the ESV mistranslates this part of Philippians 2. Which says, so if there is any, it starts this way, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, notice, any participation in the Spirit, literally, any koinonia of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind. So he is urging them on the basis of these true things. If there are these things... Is there any love around here? Of course. Well, if that's the case, let's be united. And one of the any's that he throws out there is, is there any koinonia of the Spirit here? Now, ESV takes that as commonness with the Spirit, our participation in the Spirit, which is strange because it takes a different in 2 Corinthians. I'm sure there is a reason for that. But I think just like the King James and the NASB have here, it should be if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. Again, referring to if the Holy Spirit has worked any unity or fellowship among us, which he has, then let's strive to be united. I think that's what he's saying there. Uh, lastly, still speaking of the Spirit's active work, Ephesians 4. This is my favorite passage on church unity. As of this week, as I've been studying this, it, it really is. I love this passage. The beginning of Ephesians 4. First three verses say this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Well, what is that manner? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity, it's not koinonia, it's a similar word, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is the unity of the Spirit? It is a unity, a oneness, that the Holy Spirit has worked among us actively. By default, He's done it. He's worked a unity among us. And notice, He doesn't say, you need to make the unity happen, as people have pointed out, but instead He says, maintain it. And be eager to do it. You've got to work at it, but you've got to maintain a unity that the Holy Spirit has already worked among us. So here you see this active working of unity among us by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to finish this by getting a little bit more specific. And this is something that did not stand out to me until I was preparing this and looking at the texts in preparing and reading. And, and this really stood out to me. So maybe I'm late to the game. Maybe you already thought of this. But let me show you in a specific way how the Holy Spirit fosters unity. Now, much of the Spirit's work in working koinonia among us is just invisible, and I can't describe it to you. He just does it. I haven't seen it. He does it, and we're united. So I can't even really talk about that part of it because it's invisible to me. It's a true mystery. But some of the ways that the Spirit works actively to unite us, you can see. And let me give you an example of one of those. I think the primary visible way that the Spirit unites us can be seen if you just ask this question. If we're going to be a church that has unity, what are the attitudes or characteristics or elements of maturity that we will absolutely need that will lead us to have unity together? You say, well, definitely since we are all annoying to somebody, since that's just how we are in this fallen world, the only way we're going to have any sense of unity is we're going to have to have patience. You're going to be able, have to be able to put up with some people that annoy you. You just have to do it because you will never find a church absent of such people. So there has to be patience among us, right? Okay, so we need patience. You're going to need something like humility because you're going to perceive slights from other people and sometimes they're going to be real. They make a little comment in Bible study and you know it's about you. <laughs> what are you doing? Or they say something, they're not even thinking of you, but that's how you take it. Oh, he's talking about me. She's talking about me. You're going to perceive a slight and you're going to feel offended. Well, it's going to happen. You, it's happened, you know, and it's going to happen more. So if we're going to have unity and that's not going to blow us up, what do we have to be? We're going to have to be humble. We're going to have to have humility, patience, humility. When we wrong each other, which we will do, we're going to have to be quick to forgive or that's going to turn into bitterness and a root of bitterness is going to take root here and then we're going to split and bad things are going to happen. So there has to be this quickness to forgive. If we have the inner peace that Christ offers us and we're not just anxious all the time, but we're resting in him, trusting him, that's going to be pretty important to keeping us from overreacting and causing problems. Okay, got to give this to the Lord, trust the Lord. Going to need outer peace among ourselves, of course. Joy is helpful because if you don't take yourself too seriously and you can breathe and step back and have joy even in trials, it's going to help with unity. Okay, so here are some qualities. And I would say, of course, above all of these is the umbrella idea of love. If we have love for each other as a church, we will be united. 
Is it possible to have love for each other and not be united? No. So that is like the essential thing. And everything else is under that. If you love people, you forgive them. If you love them, you're patient with them. If you love them, etc. So just thinking of the qualities necessary for us to be united, where are these going to come from? How are we going to get these qualities essential to our unity? These are all qualities that the Holy Spirit himself uniquely works in us. This is the main visible way the Spirit unites us, is by helping us not get at each other's throats when we annoy each other. And that really is a work of the Holy Spirit. Do you think the little seeds that turn into massive disruptions in a workplace, they just grow over time and they seem irreparable? That would happen here. Lest you have the qualities that the Holy Spirit promises to work in us. It does require our effort too, synergistic, but it is the Holy Spirit's work fostering all those things in us. He works that love in us, which is what allows us and even leads to us being united together. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That will help our unity. Joy, that would help our unity. Peace, whoa, yes. Patience, need it. Kindness, yeah. Goodness, definitely. Faithfulness, got to have it. Gentleness, self-control, these come from the Spirit. And if we have these as a church, we'll be united. And if you're not convinced of that, you may remember that immediately before, in Galatians 5, immediately before the list of the fruit of the Spirit come the works of the flesh, which are the opposite, and they include these things. Enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. That's what you get if you don't have the Holy Spirit actively working among you. You want to visit that church? <laughs> you want to go to Corinth in that situation? No, you don't want to visit that church. You don't want to be that church. You know the kind of church you want to go to? The one where you walk in and you're just hit with this waft of love. And there's just a sense of peace. And people are over in that corner confessing sin and forgiving each other. People are over here addressing an issue, bearing with one another. This person's having a conversation, and this person kind of annoys that person. But you know what? They love each other. They bear with each other. And he puts up with stuff with him, and he puts up with stuff with him. That's the kind of church that you want to be in. And only the Holy Spirit can work those kinds of qualities into us. You will find that in church, people who have gone through deep trials in their relationships but have not taken the easy road of just running, that's always the easy way, you know? coming to church, things get bumpy, run on to the next church. But you will find that the people who don't do that, but by the Spirit, bear with each other. And you go into that crisis in a relationship that was good, it goes into a crisis, and you're like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I mean, are we going to blow up? Is something going to be bad? Is this going to work out? How will we ever get past the awkwardness of knowing this happened? Whatever. But you bear with each other, you forgive each other, you press in to each other, you don't run away from each other. And a church made up of relationships, not surfacey ones where you've never got to that level, but those deep relationships where you've hit the crisis, but by the Holy Spirit you push through it, they form into such solid relationships. That is a healthy church. Not the one without crises of relationships, but the ones where the Spirit helps you press in and not run away and work through the issues and the conflicts following biblical principles, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the only way you can have unity. So as we end this class, I would encourage all of us, among all our other prayers, to always be praying specifically that the Spirit would give us this kind of unity and all of the qualities necessary to this kind of unity. I'm sure that some of you right now, right now, you have tension with somebody 
in this church. <laughs> don't worry, I don't know about it, okay? I'm just throwing that out there. So you've got some tension. You go, oh no, yeah. And maybe for some of you that means follow Matthew 18, you gotta go. You just gotta go talk to him. So that's awkward. Okay, you gotta go do it. It's what you're commanded to do. The Holy Spirit will go with you. He will help you do it with humility. Go have that conversation if it's a clear sin. But for some of you, that tension is just, I don't know. It's not even something you could clearly put your finger on. It's just a great relationship that's kind of soured over time and you're wondering about it. Listen, do we have the Holy Spirit living among us? Is there anything impossible for the Holy Spirit to do? So let's trust the Holy Spirit in our relationships with each other. Don't run away, press into the hard relationships and trust that the Spirit goes with you. He is the giver of life.